following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information about Trinity Grace Church, go to www.trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. So glad you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. We're glad to have you with us. As many of you know, we have been working our way through a series looking at the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 16 chapters long. It's also believed to be the earliest written Gospel that we have in our New Testament. And it's a book that recounts the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was written by Mark, and he received this eyewitness account from one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, the Apostle Peter. Peter is the one who actually recounted these events, and Mark is the one who wrote them down for us in this gospel. And that gets to be more and more significant the more you think about and the more you read this gospel. We've mentioned it before, but as you read the gospel of Mark, you get the sense that the disciples are pretty dense. They're not always painted in the best light. They make many mistakes, and oftentimes they fail to recognize who Jesus is and what his ministry is all about. And the fact is, they don't try to mask over or hide their mistakes when they tell this story. George Orwell once said, Autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. A man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying since any life when viewed from the inside is simply a series of defeats. Well, as we read the Gospels, we get accounts of the disciples that are disgraceful. And it's a small assurance that we can trust what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark. I almost Peter uh, or picture Peter recounting these events over a cup of coffee with Mark, maybe at the local Starbucks there in the first century. And as he tells some of these stories, likely having witnessed the resurrection of Jesus by the time he relays these events to Mark, he must be shaking his head. Looking back and recounting all of the obvious signs that he missed along the way. But the mistakes and missteps, they're not redacted from the account, and it's comforting for people like you and me. Because we learn that you don't have to have it all together to faithfully follow Jesus. You see that Jesus is patient with slow to believe and unfaithful disciples on almost every page of the gospel. It's counterintuitively encouraging. In the passage we're about to read, it highlights the disciples' lack of faith and understanding once again. There are two times in the gospel of Mark where Jesus feeds thousands of people with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. The first time we see it in the book of Mark is in chapter 6, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people uh, with, uh, with uh, basically a few loaves of bread and, and a few fish. And this morning, as we pick up in chapter 8, we see Jesus do it again. This time, he feeds 4,000 people, and he's got just seven loaves and what the passage says are a few, few small fish. And the people eat, and they're completely satisfied. And it's a miracle of Jesus providing for his people, a miracle of provision. And as we look at this passage, I hope that we're able to see that it's a microcosm of our experience as we follow Jesus on a daily and a weekly basis. I think we can see ourselves specifically in the disciples most. So I want to invite you to pay close attention to the disciples as we read and unpack this passage this morning. 
you follow along as I read from chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It's printed for you in your bulletin. It's also found in the Bible. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamunutha. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out before, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are you are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I once heard a pastor tell the story of an older widow who lived in an apartment building and was experiencing tough financial times. And in the same building was a younger man who was antagonistic to this lady, really nasty to her, in fact, specifically because he knew that she was a Christian and he didn't like it. And this lady used to sit on her balcony and pray out loud saying, Jesus, give me what I need. I don't have money to pay the bills and to buy groceries this month. Please provide, was her prayer. Well, her antagonistic neighbor would sometimes overhear the prayer. And as he heard them, he grew increasingly annoyed as he sat on his balcony. He didn't believe in God and he felt like it was kind of sad how this lady kept kind of casting uh, hope out into thin air in his opinion. And he begins to think, she needs to know this isn't real. And so to antagonize her, he decides to go and buy the groceries that she was praying about. So he buys the groceries, he sets them next to her front door, he rings the doorbell, and then he goes and he hides around the corner. And the lady opens the door and starts to shout, Jesus, oh Jesus, praise Jesus, he's given me what I need. And the man jumps out with a smirk on his face and says, lady, it wasn't Jesus that bought these groceries, it was me. God had nothing to do with it. What do you think of that? To which the lady, not missing a beat, replied, Praise Jesus, praise Jesus. He not only provided me groceries, but he also made the devil pay the bill. (laughs) Funny story highlights the theme of provision, and it's the theme of our passage this morning. And by and large, we we might not be a group of folks that tend to struggle with making financial ends meet, although that may very well be some of our stories right now. 
But even if you're not struggling with making financial ends meet, you are someone who often wonders how you're going to make it in other ways. We feel it relationally. Asking God to provide us with a sense of connection and closeness with our spouse or our kids or maybe a sibling that we've lost touch with. We feel it physically. When we or someone we love experiences sickness and disease, when a family member is diagnosed with cancer and you cry out to God to provide healing and relief, how are you going to deal with this situation? We feel it vocationally sometimes. When we're in between jobs or we're not quite sure where or when we'll find steady employment again, how is God going to provide? We feel it emotionally. How's God going to provide a sense of wholeness when you are more lonely right now than you've ever been in your entire life? We feel it spiritually when we begin to wonder if God is ever going to provide relief from the besetting sin and the strong temptation that I continue to trip up on over and over again. Some of us right now and in the past have felt it with regard to family, wondering if God will ever provide us with the children that we so desperately want. We may not recognize it, but we think about provision a lot. How are you going to make it? What's going to happen? Will God provide? Can God provide? This is actually one of the main questions we see throughout the Bible. What's going to happen? How are we going to make it? Is God going to provide? All through the pages of Scripture, as God's people ask that question time and time again, we see that God continually provides for his people. You see the question come up at the very beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, they wonder, how is God going to provide now? And God provides a promise for a plan of salvation. You see it in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, and God provides a substitute ram for him to sacrifice instead. You see it in the life of Joseph, how God provides a way for his people to survive a famine and find food in Egypt where Joseph had been taken captive years earlier. You see it as God's people travel through the desert in the Exodus, God providing for their needs along the way, and we're only through the first and second book of the Bible. We could go on and on and on. The point is we see through the pages of Scripture that God provides over and over and over he provides. And we see the same thing in our passage this morning. In the midst of a large group of people who are hungry and tired, Jesus provides. And that's really the big idea this morning. Jesus provides. And I want to look at it under three headings. First, we see the need. Second, we see the doubt. And third, we see the provision. So need, doubt, and provision all under the umbrella of God providing. First thing we see in our passage is a need. In Matthew's gospel, when he recounts this event, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John oftentimes recount the same events in different ways from different perspectives. They're called the synoptic gospels. So Matthew also tells the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And when he tells this story, he clues us into the fact that Jesus had just spent time healing a large group of people. Jesus was healing the lame and the cripple and the blind. That's the people that he had around him in this passage. And after healing them, we read that he teaches them. And from our passage in verse 2, we get a sense that Jesus had been teaching for some time. The text says, in fact, three days he'd been teaching them. These people were captivated by Jesus. 
They were drawn to him for healing and they were riveted by his teaching. In fact, his teaching was so good and culturally unique that people stayed too long. It seems that the food had run out. This crowd didn't likely anticipate being with Jesus for so long. And over the course of three days, they'd eaten all that they had. So Mark says as much in verse one, when he says that the crowd had nothing to eat. And so seeing this need, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He has a little huddle with his disciples and tells them that he has compassion for the crowd. Jesus felt for these people. He cared for them. It was a feeling of mercy and tenderness that Jesus had towards this group. And he knows that if he sends them home, since some of them came from a long distance, it says, they might not make it back. So the need is evident. We have at least 4,000 people, likely this is just men, might include additional uh, women and children, which would make the number somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of 8,000 to 10,000 people total. And they're sitting in front of Jesus, hungry and without food. They'd run out of bread. And in that day and age, bread represented life. Bread represented life. As you read the pages of the Gospels, you notice that bread is mentioned a lot because it was so important. There wasn't a local HEB in those days where folks could grab a quick loaf of bread on their way home. Instead, people in Jesus's time weren't always sure where bread would come from. It was a valuable commodity, something people prayed for daily in that culture. So Jesus knows that the crowd has this need, specifically in this passage. And it's interesting to recognize how Jesus responds when he's confronted with this insurmountable need. Oftentimes, if you were to confront me with something that I did not have the resources to provide you with, I tend to get angry or I tend to get anxious or I tend to feel sorry for myself that I'm in a situation where I can't help. But you see Jesus face this insurmountable need and Jesus doesn't get anxious about meeting this need. He's not angry that these people are needy. He doesn't feel sorry for himself that God has once again put him between a rock and a hard place. He simply recognizes in verse three that he can't send them away hungry. So Jesus directs his disciples to take inventory, to go and see what they have, and it's not much. Especially when you consider that there's 4,000 people in front of them to feed. They've got seven loaves of bread, and the text says a few small fish on hand. It's almost as if Jesus is setting up a scenario where God's going to have to provide. A gigantic need that must be met and the resources on hand are completely inadequate. If these people are going to eat, something amazing is going to have to happen. God is going to have to show up in a big way. And that brings up a worthy application question for us this morning. Do we ever engage in anything that would be impossible without God's involvement? In other words, do we ever place ourselves in positions where we don't have the resources to meet a need and have to rely completely on God to come through? I wonder this morning where you feel a deep need, but you look at the inventory in your life and it feels completely inadequate. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a struggle that you have in your life that continues to trip you up and you look at the resources in your heart and your soul and you know that you don't stand a chance. We sometimes experience this in our call to evangelize, to share the gospel with our neighbors. We know that we're called to share the good news of Jesus with our friends and our neighbors, but we hear their questions. 
and we hear their doubts. And maybe they're open to talking, but the need seems so big and we feel like our inventory is so small. And if God doesn't show up to multiply the effectiveness of our words, there's no hope of anything happening. God's got to provide. The good news for us is that God's in the business of providing. In fact, he often works most effectively when our need is the largest, when our inventory is the smallest. We've seen him do it before when God's people are moving through the desert in the exodus from Egypt and he provides manna. Sarah read it for us this morning. The need is big. Hundreds of thousands of people need to eat and God provides daily bread for their wilderness journey. God's people are hungry and he feeds them not just for a day. He feeds them not just for a week or even a year, but for every day of their 40-year wilderness journey. Everyone was fed. No one lacked. God provided what was needed on a daily basis. The people only needed to stay dependent on God to provide. In fact, the only problem they had is if they gathered too much for one day, it would basically spoil overnight God's way of keeping his people dependent on his provision. It's a story we see through the pages of the Bible, and we see it this morning again. Here's a group of people in need. They need bread. They need provision. And by the end of the story, we see Jesus satisfy their needs by providing an abundance. But before we get to the provision that Jesus brings, we see a certain measure of doubt from his disciples. What you need to know about the disciples is that they have seen this happen before. It's kind of like uh, the Groundhog Day movie. They've been here before. In fact, just two chapters earlier, they witnessed Jesus feed over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. You would think that they would catch on by now, at least one of the 12, maybe. But you see from our passage that they don't. In verse 3, Jesus gives them an opportunity. He gives them an opportunity to express faith and trust, but we see their faithless response in verse 4. They say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Seriously, have they already forgotten what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 two chapters earlier? Maybe just a matter of weeks or months. Well, Jesus brushes their lack of faith to the side and asks them in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? And you get the sense from the way Mark writes that the disciples are short with Jesus, kind of like a teenager is short with a parent. They're curt and rude even. They respond quickly and sharply by saying seven. Seven. They're likely tired and hungry. Ministry can be difficult at times. Sometimes we just want to focus on ourselves and let others take care of themselves. And it's not a stretch to think that this is how the disciples felt in this instance. So we see the disciples who are so dense in this passage, they don't get it yet. And even when they get back in the boat with Jesus in verse 14 of our passage, they have only one loaf of bread and immediately they begin to wonder how they're going to eat. And Jesus has to remind them again what they just witnessed, how he provides for them. Jesus marvels that they don't get it yet. Their eyes of faith are so cloudy. It's almost comical when you read this passage. It leaves us shaking our heads. But we can't throw them under the bus too quickly because if we're honest, I think we see ourselves in them. Like them, we oftentimes don't get it. Many of us have spent lots of years walking with Jesus, many more years than these disciples have, 
Maybe we've even witnessed him doing amazing things in our lives, yet we still fail like these original 12 disciples. We look at them and we wonder, how can they not understand yet? But then we've got to look at our own lives and wonder, how can someone be a follower and talk to people the way that I talk to people? How can someone be a follower of Jesus for as many years as I follow Jesus and use food the way I use food? How can someone like me who's followed Jesus for so many years still medicate my pain the way I do with pornography or alcohol or relationships? How can we be so dense? So slow to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. Why do we not get it yet? The picture that comes to mind in the way I've heard others talk about this reality is thinking about a rescue dog. My family this past year adopted a dog. His name is Scout. And we got him as a puppy, so he had no prior life experience or, uh, uh, to overcome. And uh, there's other rescue dogs out there, though. Maybe some of you have rescued these types of dogs where you rescue them from a horrible situation, where the dog has to learn a completely new way of life in your home. And no matter how well you treat the dog, no matter how many times you feed the dog, no matter how many times you walk it and pet it and invite it onto the couch and cuddle it, the dog continues to doubt your goodness and love even after he's been with you for lots of years. And in many ways, I think that's a picture of us. We've experienced God's goodness and provision over and over again, yet we still doubt his goodness and his love. We're still skittish. We're unsure that he's going to provide for what we need. We forget all the time. In fact, many of us are going to leave this service. We're going to leave this table behind me today, and it won't be a matter of hours until we're wondering again if God is good. So easy to slip back into our defeated mentalities, wondering if God can really provide help in relationships or temptations or sicknesses. And we've got to admit that we're no different than these 12 disciples. But it's beautiful and even hopeful for us when we see how Jesus responds to them in this passage. Even in the midst of their doubt and unbelief, God continues to provide. And not only does he continue to provide, get this, he invites his disciples to participate in that provision. In verse 6, we see that Jesus takes their inadequate provisions, he blesses them, he gives them to his disciples, he gives them the bread to set before the people using his disciples in ministry. And this highlights something we need to constantly hear. God is not ashamed or embarrassed of you. He is not ashamed or embarrassed of us, though we have given him truckloads of reason to be. Jesus doesn't scold these disciples. He doesn't get angry with them. He's not disappointed in them. And it shows us something about who God is. The Father is not ashamed to call us his children. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his siblings. The Holy Spirit is not ashamed to live inside of our hearts. He delights to use us, even in our doubts and in our lack of faith. Jesus wants his disciples to feed these people. Aren't you glad that there are passages like this in the Bible? I mean, what would we be missing if Mark had redacted these passages? Passages that highlight the compassion that Jesus had for the crowds, but also the compassion that he has for us as his followers. 
his disciples who follow him, who are often full of doubt. It's so comforting and reassuring when we see how Jesus lovingly responds and continues to use his disciples despite our many doubts. So we've seen the need. We've seen the doubt. Now let's spend a few minutes looking at how Jesus provides. Let's look at the provision. Jesus takes a few small fish, it says, and seven loaves of bread. Jesus gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread to his disciples. And he turns these meager supplies into a feast. In verse 8, we see that all 4,000 of these people ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces that were left over, and they had seven basketfuls full of bread and fish. Jesus gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread to his disciples. That's how Jesus provides. And doesn't that sound like something you've heard before? Happens later in the book of Mark, in chapter 14, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, staring down death, his disciples are with him in an upper room, and he's having dinner. And in verse 22, it says, as they were eating, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And this is ultimately how Jesus provides for you and me. It's what this miracle in Mark 8 is meant to point us towards ultimately. Something that seems so insufficient on the surface so meager that the world looks at it and thinks it's foolishness, that people look at it and it's a stumbling block because it does not seem powerful at all, yet God uses it to feed anyone who would come to him until they're satisfied. Jesus is the bread from heaven that can satisfy our souls, the only thing that can bring the fulfillment that we're searching for. And you and I tend to think other things in life are going to satisfy us. We, we do this all the time. We look to beauty. We look to material possessions, our bank accounts or our 401ks, to approval, to control. And we ask these things to satisfy us. Maybe if we had just a little bit more, then we'd be satisfied. But I think we've all lived long enough to know we're always left empty because there's only one thing that will ultimately satisfy us, and that's Christ himself. And in the midst of all of our wondering and questions of how God is going to provide for us, we hear Jesus say in John chapter 6, which we read a little bit earlier, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God provides and he does it by giving us his son, the bread of life. Jesus comes and he gives us himself. It's what we're about to celebrate at this table this morning. Jesus giving us his body represented through bread and his blood represented through wine and grape juice. Jesus came to give us what we really need. Jesus came to give us life and to fill us up fully to forgive our sins and to make us whole, to give us not what we think we need most, but what we actually need most. He gives us himself the bread of life. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are one who satisfies our soul's deepest needs. Lord, you know our needs better than we know them ourselves. You know that we need life. 
It's oftentimes represented through bread. Lord, you provide for us physically, but more importantly, you provide for us spiritually. You provide for reconciliation to our Father. You provide forgiveness of sins. You provide community in which to be a part of. And we pray this morning as we celebrate that at this table that you would encourage and nourish our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.